Hi, folks. If you're hearing this, you already know the power of podcasts. Sure. But believe it or not, yeah, some people still don't get it. Unbelievable. They don't know what podcasts are out there. They don't know how to listen. It's like having access to a smartphone, but only using a landline. That actually doesn't sound so bad, that part. That's true. But this is bad. Because we all know podcasts help expand your mind. They help you keep up with current events or just laugh a lot. So for the next month, we are participating in an initiative called Tripod. You see where this is going? Oh, yes. If everyone who listened to podcasts recommended one to a friend or showed them how to listen, the world would be a happier and more informed place with way more napping and hugs. Ah. So right now, think of someone you care about. What podcast would they really love? Like, for example, The Dinner Party Download. Oh, sure. I heard that's a great one. I've heard it's awesome. Tell them about it. And if you suspect they don't know how to listen, teach them. Mm. You're encouraging them to try a pod. Mm. Get it? I think they get it. And once you've done your friend and the world this service, head to your social media outlet of choice and tell us what you shared using the hashtag TRYPOD. That is T-R-Y pod. And thanks for spreading the word. Oh, that's probably my fair letting me know my horse is ready. Huh. Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. When I was about, I want to say 10 or 12, I went to computer camp, and someone told me this joke, and it's very simple. Two old ladies are driving in a car. They go through a stop sign. Uh, Ethel, in the passenger seat, says, uh, Margaret, you just blew through a stop sign. <laughs> Margaret goes, am I driving? I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM, American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download. Culture, food, and humor to fuel your party conversations. You just got a joke from comedian Pete Holmes. That'll break the ice. Later, he'll tell us about his new HBO show, Crashing, and about the upside of divorce, apparently. Plus, we talk with comic-turned-director Jordan Peele about his hit horror film, Get Out. Also, Pulitzer-winning author Viet Thanh Nguyen gives voice to refugees, and country singer-songwriter Valerie June stands in the eye of a punk rock hurricane. But first, small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am here tonight to deliver a message of unity and strength. Sessions met two times with Russia's ambassador. That's something Sessions denied to the Senate Judiciary Committee. Now for a story you might not have heard, we are joined by Joe Livingston. She is a culture staff writer at the New Republic. Joe, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I am going to be talking to you about running and justice. Wow. Two things I'm interested in. Recently, a marathon runner named Jane Sir was outed as a cheater at the Fort Lauderdale Half Marathon. She placed second mm-hmm. for a race that she did not run. What happened? Okay, so it turned out in the end that she had ridden a bike for half of the marathon. <laughs> what? But she kind we- of, she was about to get away with it scot-free, mm-hmm. but the race timer got suspicious Okay. She came mm-hmm. under investigation by a marathon sleuth named Derek Murphy, who is the proprietor of MarathonInvestigations.com. Wait, wait, what? <laughs> there's an there's an actual private eye for marathons. I cannot recommend his content highly enough. All right, and what did okay. he find out? Okay, so it's a little bit complicated, but basically, he purchased the rights to a photo of her where she was wearing a digital gadget, yeah. which had kind of like biometric data on it, zoomed all the way in. And saw proof that she had, in fact, not run the correct number of miles. So oh. via some sleuthing, he eventually uncovered what she'd done. And she was expelled from her team, the Dashing Whippets. The Dashing Whippets? Yes. 
<laughs> and she's stripped of her silver medal. And the rights to ever name a team again. <laughs> Here's the thing, though. If she rode a bike for the second half of the race, why did she bother entering a marathon? Why didn't she just enter, like, a bike race? She went to Harvard, but apparently this didn't occur to her. This seems harder than running the whole time, though, in a way. Hiding had... a bike, picking up the bike, then riding That's the true. bike and losing the they... bike and then appearing like you ran. Maybe she just got confused. Isn't that a triathlon? Running and then hiding a bike and then getting the bike <laughs> and then biking? This whole thing is ridiculous. <laughs> All right. Joe Livingston, thanks so much for the small talk. No problem. Now, time for cocktails, perhaps a greyhound. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a camel, but instead of water, it stores booze. It's pretty handy. I like it. First, the history part. This week in Germany, back in 1922, a classic movie monster was born Mm. and then plunged into the scariest nightmare of all. Yep, a lawsuit. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. One of the greatest horror movies ever almost had a stake put through its heart. It was director F.W. Murnau's Nosferatu, a silent black-and-white chiller about an undead guy who lives in Transylvania and likes to suck blood from people's necks. Sound an awful lot like Bram Stoker's Dracula? That's because it was with a few tweaks to avoid copyright infringement. Like, for instance, Count Dracula became Count Orlock. Alas, that wasn't quite enough to satisfy Florence Stoker, Bram's widow. She owned the copyright to Dracula and very little else. She and Bram had never received much cash from the sales of the book, and she wasn't about to let someone else earn cash from a movie version. So, Florence sued and won a horrifying verdict. Not only did the film's production company have to pay her reparations, they were ordered to destroy the negative and every single print in existence. But you know, vampires tend to rise from the dead, and so did Nosferatu. Miraculously, a few prints survived, screened for small audiences around the world, including the United States, where the movie heavily influenced the atmosphere and even the script of Hollywood's first vampire flick. I am Dracula. Oh, it's really good to see you. Universal Studios' Dracula, starring Bela Lugosi, launched a golden age of monster movies. But it wasn't till decades later, when Nosferatu showed up on late-night TV, that most horror fans first saw the film that inspired it all. It's since been remade by Werner Herzog, referenced on SpongeBob SquarePants, and immortalized in song by Blue Oyster Cult. So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve along with it. I am on the line with Max Haza. He is bartender at Redwood Bar Berlin, which is, of course, the city where Nosferatu first premiered. Max, you heard the history. What cocktail did that inspire you to make? Yeah, well, the cocktail I'm making is called the Hahnenschrei, which is the German word for rooster crow. A 
rooster, like a chicken? Like, yeah, it's like the kookily, or what, what do they make? Cockily do or something? Uh, like, Cockadoodle-doo. Cockadoodle-doo, yeah. I didn't want to call it the Cockadoodle-doo cocktail, so I called it uh, the Hahnenschweiß. Yeah, it's harder for us to pronounce, but I think it makes more <laughs> sense coming from Germany. Yeah. Why, I guess that's because the rooster is the harbinger of daylight, which kills vampires or something? Yeah, that's correct. And um, because Nosferatu had this big copyright problem, I thought I will take a classic drink that already exists and do a variation of it. So I took the blood and sand. Oh, the blood and sand cocktail. So this is a riff on the blood and sand. It is a riff off of the blood and sand cocktail. <laughs> um, and actually, yeah, I, I took the blood and sand because for sure blood makes sense with vampires. Of course. And... Um, Sand because the movie was already thought to be like uh, dead and buried under earth, and um, then it's had like its resurrection. So I used I used coffee bitters in this cocktail okay. for the resurrection part. Oh yeah, because it wakes you back up. Yeah, it brings you back to life in the morning. <laughs> and what else? And I used bourbon, um, bourbon because um, in Romania where Transylvania is, they cook with corn. And the bourbon is made out of corn, so I thought bourbon would be a nice liquor to use. Wow, all right. Um, and finally? Like a little bit of scotch, orange juice, sweet remove. Then I, I wanted Gilka liquor, which is a caraway seed liquor. Caraway seeds. Um, it's called Gilka? It's called Gilka liquor. But here's the thing, though. If you, so you base this on the Blood and Sand cocktail. Do you know if the Blood and Sand is copyrighted? Um, actually, actually uh, I did not, but uh, I hope it's not a big problem. <laughs> <laughs> Max Haza of Redwood Bar Berlin. They will be serving that drink all month, by the way, if you're passing through. And Brendan, favorite trivia about Nosferatu? Okay. The guy who played Count Orlok, his name is Max mm -hmm. Schreck. His mm. last name literally means fright in German. <laughs> wow. Perfect. I thought it meant green ogre. Well, but <laughs> that too, I guess. Spending too much time with my nephews. Mm. And horror fans, this is the episode for you. Later, we'll hear from newly minted horror maestro Jordan Peele. So stay tuned. And now the soundtrack in which a great musician DJs your dinner party. And today our guest is Valerie June. The Memphis singer and guitarist's last album, Pushing Against a Stone, was produced by the Black Keys' Dan Auerbach. One critic called it organic moonshine roots music. I love you, critic. It's pretty evocative. Her new album, The Order of Time, is a fresh take on bluegrass. Here is Valerie with a playlist that takes us from a couple of kings of rock to one of the queens of pop. Hey, this is Valerie June, and I rarely have dinner parties. So I decided to make this one a blowout extravaganza of masterful taste. <laughs> You'll see where we end up. Okay, first up is Watch the Corners by Dinosaur June. One time I was watching the lead singer Jay Maskus perform, and I loved it so much. We ended up becoming friends, and he invited me to share the stage with him and um, sing Watch the Corners with him. I want you to be with I've never been on stage with that much sound coming from behind from the speakers and having it basically lift me off the stage like I was sitting on top of a fire hydrant that just opened up.
So if I can achieve having the speakers be that bumping as their stage sound at my dinner party, I think everybody in the neighborhood would be invited. My second song I'd play at the dinner party, Suspicious Minds by Elvis Presley. We're caught in a trap. I'm such a huge Elvis fan, and I wasn't. I lived in Memphis for 10 years. I'm raised in Tennessee, and I told myself I'm never going to Graceland. But some friends from Germany came over, and they wanted to go. You're showing them around town. You have to take them to Graceland. We can't go on What a house to host a dinner party in, because he was really, really all over the place, animal print and everything. I just always overlooked Elvis. I began to realize that he really was not defined by genres. He was able to do a little blues. He was able to do a little rock and roll. He was able to do soul. To me, he held it all, gospel, all of it. And the song Suspicious Minds, I don't know why, it just comes into my head. We can't go on together with suspicious minds. Maybe because I have a suspicious mind. And for all the girls who come to the dinner party wearing short skirts, I'll be telling my boyfriend, don't you look at them. No, I'm joking. (laughs) Next on my list, this is a song that everyone knows and is so worth playing because everyone can sing along to it. Baby Love by The Supremes, in particular Diana Ross. People are into their fried chicken by now, and we're like, mm, baby, baby. Even though we're talking about things going on in our lives, we're also singing. You feel like she's singing to you personally, like you are just sitting in a chair right in front of her, and nobody else is in the room. <laughs> When I'm looking out at the crowd and my shows, I'm so insular with my work. So sometimes I have to say to myself, open your eyes and address them as if you were Diana Ross. (laughs) Everyone has an inner Diana, right? (laughs) Well, the dinner party is winding down. And I want to end it with my own song called With You. I feel like we dance through life, you know, and 
we don't get very many moments with the people we love and care about in life. So even if you're just having a cup of coffee, can it be a special thing? Can it be a do -si do Can it be a toe-to-toe? Valerie June with a song from her new album, The Order of Time. It's out March 10th, and she's on tour right now. All right, coming up, Jordan Peele takes a break from comedy to make a horror film about race. I designed the whole film in the post-racial lie. When the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, Pulitzer-winning author Viet Thanh Nguyen talks about his new book, The Refugees. And in a few minutes, comedian Pete Holmes says stand-ups are stand-up guys. Hmm. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right, and this week it's Jordan Peele. You may know him as half of the comedy duo Key and Peele. Their Comedy Central show produced some of the funniest and most incisive satire of the last many years, often centering around issues of race. And his new project also tackles that topic head-on, but in a totally different way. Indeed, it's a horror movie he wrote and directed called Get Out. And it's about a black man named Chris whose white girlfriend takes him home to meet her parents. Though they welcome him into their suburban home with open arms, he starts to suspect something racist and evil is afoot. Before getting into the politics of the movie, I asked Jordan about his first experience with horror flicks. First um, exposure to it was, was just pieces of it, right? I mean, you're a kid looking at video boxes and posters. And uh, I remember distinctly getting really freaked out by the Nightmare on Elm Street poster. You know, so surreal and weird and just... You know, real lesson, the first lesson you sort of learn as a horror fan, I think, is that the mystery of what's going on behind this movie, uh, that mystery is the scariest thing of all. Not knowing what's going to happen. Not knowing what's going to happen. Often the, the idea of a horror movie is scarier than when you actually see the horror movie. <laughs> I would say almost all the time. Most the of the time. And, that, you know, it's for a very human reason, right? The unknown. We're, we're, we're genetically geared to fear the unknown. Mm -hmm. um, which, of course, is a sort of human demon that permeates through this movie that I've made. Yes. But, uh, yeah, I definitely respect mystery as as the best type of fear. But do you remember the first movie that you actually went to see? Horror movie that you sort of chose the, to freak yourself out with? You know, The, the Shining is, I think, undeniable as, as probably the best horror film, certainly the best ghost story ever told. Um, Alien is a special movie. Oh, yeah. That's a true classic. And um, I'll say uh, a Nightmare on Elm Street as well. Yeah. And by the way, Nightmare on Elm Street is sort of the opposite, especially as the franchise unfolds, the opposite idea of just give them all the gore, <laughs> give them all the horror. It, it creeped me out in a very special way because it did, you know, there was little left to the imagination and, and Freddie had this... Freddie Krueger, the main villain. Yeah, this messed up sense of humor that was just like, that was particularly uh, psychopathic for me but um. it's true also the thing about that movie is that there is no escape you can't even sleep you yeah. can't freddy krueger kills people in their dreams so when you go home after you see the movie and you try to go to sleep that's actually the most vulnerable you could be yeah you know the best <laughs> horror movies hit on some fear that all of us have that uh, is relatable jaws made the the water scary <laughs> 
that's um, true. So it was tricky to do a movie about race that, you know, you, you could say has, you know, people have very different experience of what race means in this country. It's tricky to do that in a way that's inclusive, in a way that allows everybody to relate to the main character thoroughly. Well, let's let's talk about this, actually. So one of the things, actually, that horror is really great at, it's almost expected in a horror movie to take on taboos or difficult issues. And you have, and you've taken on racism, but you haven't taken on the classic evil racist. It's, you've called them liberal elites, the people <laughs> that would consider themselves above racism. Right. Why pick that well, and why this way? You know, many of us think we're above racism. Like we're the one person who has it figured out. And I, I think that's part of the problem is that nobody is really willing to look at themselves as, you know, having our own personal racisms, racisms that we figure out. So the group, to me, that was more enticing to create this horror movie around was a, you know, group that might provide a false sense of security mm-hmm. uh, in the beginning to this black character and feel like, okay, you're in... You're welcome in this environment. It's this white family that seems totally hip. They're hip. They're into it. They're into the fact that their daughter is dating a a, a black person. In some ways, it's the anti-guess who's coming to dinner in that way. It's like the the creepy part here is that they they almost don't skip a beat. Meaning? As in Chris is dreading this moment that they first see him. And, you know, they haven't been told that their daughter is dating a black man. And... You know, he's dreading the first moment where maybe there's a disappointment or some, you know, little... Yeah, flicker of recognition that this is not typical. Right. Like, you know, the the Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn roles in in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, you know, that, that movie was about the idea of... You know, people who are okay with black people, but not in my family (laughs) when it comes down to it. Well, this is, you know, the creepiness of the absence of a sort of racial acknowledgement at first. So how long has this been going on, this this thing? (laughs) How long? (laughs) Four months. Four months? Mm. Uh, Five months, actually. She's right. I'm wrong. Attaboy. Better get used to saying that. (laughs) That is almost as unsettling or more in this time where there's a certain dynamic expected. Maybe the the real horror is the fact that we're not talking about this, basically, that we're not even acknowledging that there might be these barriers between us as races. Absolutely. I designed the whole film in the post-racial lie. America. Obama was president, mm-hmm. and it felt like there was a denial of racism as, as a problem. It was this feeling like, we have a black president, so why perpetuate it by continuing to bring it up? So the, the movie is about the neglect of this real horror that many of us know we've never been past. Mm-hmm. I had an interesting reaction to this movie where I did get, obviously it's a small inkling, but a little bit of an inkling of the difficulties of interacting as a person of color in white society, it really conveyed, especially the exhaustion of it Mm -hmm. and the tension of not knowing where the next awkward or insulting situation could arise. But was my reaction just a happy byproduct of the movie you made? Was the movie aimed at people like me or more towards uh, people of color who have to deal with these situations all the time? It was was aimed at everybody, but... 
through slightly different reasons. For for a black horror movie audience, I wanted to give them the movie they've always wanted <laughs> and, and, and haven't gotten yeah. the representation of the perspective and skin in that movie. Yeah. Um, you know, for somebody who's not black, for someone who's not a minority, for someone who may not feel in their day-to-day basis in touch with the idea, the, the fear of being the other, yeah, I think this is what the power of story is. When, when story is entertaining, we can use it to step into each other's shoes, right? Sure. You, you have a protagonist. Like, we've got this surrogate that everybody in the theater is seeing through the eyes of Chris. Yeah, and whether so, you're white or black. Whether you're white or black. Everyone's in it together. I don't think there's a feeling of separation when you're watching the film. No. I will say, though, I saw it in a, a mixed audience. Yeah. And it was... it was Some slightly different responses. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it, was, it was remarkable. I mean, the black people in the audience, it's really true. I got this feeling that it was like, at last, the people were really happy to finally see themselves portrayed in that way. Yeah. You know, I... I think that black people are really loyal horror fan base. You know, many minority groups, I think, are. Yeah, why do you think that is? Well, you know, I think part of it is horror is one of the ways we purge our fears of the real-life horrors. Mm -hmm. And when you have an oppressed group, um, you've got more horrors to purge. We have two questions that we ask everyone on the show. Question number one is, if we meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you? Um, if you meet me at a dinner party, you know, first I would say, don't ask me what I would like to eat, because I might think uh, you are the, the wait server. Okay. Um, if you're a guest, don't ask I'm, me what you'd like to eat. Don't confuse me. I've met a lot of people, and I don't want to make a mistake. Um, is there something you're asked all the time that you're just like Something I'm asked all the with? time. You know, people ask me why I'm obsessed with race. And really? it, yeah, and I don't even, it's not even a question that you can't ask me, but you know, I think within the need to ask that question is also a need to not discuss race mm-hmm. and, and, a, and a fear of that discussion. I feel like the discussion, however it happens, if it's a movie, if it's a awkward conversation, if it's a, a TV show, I, I feel like the communication is the only weapon we have against the true horrors and violences in the world. So we have to just keep talking about what we see. Our second question is to tell us something we don't know. And this can be about anything, about yourself, a piece of trivia. Yeah, something uh, you don't know. Well, <laughs> I'm a huge Disney fan. Really? Yeah, I love Disney. Growing up, I love Disney movies. The The amount of precision that goes into Disney movies is, you know, one of like the core inspiring ideas for me as an artist. It's like you want to try and get something perfect. Disney is kind of like weird, happy Kubrick. (laughs) (laughs) That should be the name of a band too. Happy Happy Kubrick Kubrick or a, uh, what's his name movie? Uh, An Adam Sandler film, maybe. (laughs) Happy Uh, Kubrick, wait. (laughs) I got to coin that because if I can do Happy Kubrick the film... I just made you a billion dollars. You made me a billion dollars. You're welcome. But you're involved. You're a producer. Oh, great. You're in. It's on tape. We got it. Jordan Peele, as of this recording, his horror film Get Out is the number one movie in America. And by the way, last week we posted a longer, almost unedited version of that interview. Mm -hmm. To hear it and a preview of Happy Kubrick. Oh, yes. You don't want to miss that. Subscribe to the (laughs) Dinner Party Download podcast via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. 
right, and now let's learn some scary good manners. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week is comedian Pete Holmes. Oh. Comedian fans are probably familiar <laughs> with his wildly popular podcast, You Made It Weird, where oh. he talks with other comedians about mainly comedy, sex, and religion. What else is there to yeah. talk about, oh, sure. really? Yeah, sure. He also hosted the very much missed Pete Holmes show on TBS, and oh. his latest project is the HBO series Crashing. It's about a New York comic conspicuously named Pete Holmes who has to restart his life and forge a career after his wife leaves him. Pete, Cons- welcome to our show. Conspicuously. Yeah. <laughs> like you're at home like, it's- hey, <laughs> wait a second. <laughs> it's a little overt. You forgot to go back, control F, and replace Pete Holmes with whatever the fictional name was. <laughs> with, with Jack. Jack Harms. <laughs> Jack Harms. We considered a Jack right. Harms, and I was like, come on. So the the title, Crashing, yes. it refers partially to your character crashing on people's couches. Yes. Including some very big uh, comedians, Artie Lang and Sarah Silverman, yep. T.J. Miller, yep. all of whom play themselves. And actually, it seems like a, a big impetus for this show is to kind of accurately portray the stand-up world. Yeah. What part of that world were you happiest to get a chance to portray that maybe you hadn't seen portrayed before? Just that, the, the idea that these guys like comedians really are like a family I think what most people think of when you think of stand-up is backstabbing or every man for themselves and pushing to get the one or two slots and that just wasn't my experience Mm. like in real life when my wife left me in real life TJ Miller and I were somewhat close not Uh, super mm. close but my wife leaves and then he had me come visit him in Pittsburgh and I stayed with him for like four or five days just because I was super bummed and like didn't really have any friends. I don't know if you know married guys like that, that the bridges kind of get blown yeah. up. The, he, yeah. I did it. It wasn't like my wife was controlling me. I was like, okay, I got a warm body. We got <laughs> Who uh, needs pals? Sopranos DVDs and there's some cheddar popcorn. <laughs> and wow, I wonder why it dissolved. <laughs> mm, that sounds, what was the problem? That does sound really good. Sounds yeah. vibrant. <laughs> <laughs> it's, not, it's a cover of a romance novel you don't want to read. <laughs> no. Just me That's in sweatpants right. with cheddar cheese popcorn stains all over them. <laughs> So anyway, that was that was a long way to say that uh, it's a it's a slight exaggeration of real things, and and then we made divorce a lot funnier and eventful, <laughs> because real real divorce is you know it is yeah. what you think it is it's bl- blinds drawn and a lot of ice cream and yeah, yeah. gently weeping. I and, should yeah. note I've I've been through this. Have you? Yeah, yeah. So and it's 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 painfully accurate what you're portraying <laughs> on your show, plus more interesting. Exactly. Things. Well, we wanted it to be. I'm glad to hear that. I'm sorry that for your divorce. Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was good and yeah. I think that's how come the... I'm feeling how come I'm feeling bad that I didn't get divorced? How <laughs> yeah. is this possible? You just stay out of this, Brendan. <laughs> like, oh, let the I big just boys make good talk. decisions. I'm... Oops, yeah. let me suffer. <laughs> well, that's that's one of the messages of the show too, is like these things are good and bad. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? No, nobody would say that it's you wouldn't say to someone who is in the middle of a divorce, hey, it's good and bad. But here I am ten years later looking back and go and trying to tell the story with comedy, you know, things that we would never ask for are things that take us where we wanted to go. I'm writing this down. Hold on, sorry. Uh, things we never asked for. Oh, I have to say, Judd always nudges me whenever I say anything. Judd Apatow, your producer. Judd Apatow, the producer. Whenever I say anything even remotely philosophical about the show, he nudges me and I have to be like, and a lot of jokes about genitalia. <laughs> you know, like, don't worry. <laughs> There's scrotum humor oh, and great. everything. And, you know, and also some very smart humor as well. But uh, I like to think that there's something that will tug at you to keep watching. We did want to ask you, one before we get to our listeners' etiquette question, you were raised a, a fairly conservative Christian, is my understanding. Christian, I believe it's pronounced. I'm sorry. 
And religion is something you talk about in this show. You talk about it on your podcast a lot. Tell us a little about entering the stand-up scene with that background, because to put it mildly, I think of that scene as irreverent in the literal sense of the term, like they are not reverent of anything, yes. including religion. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it was it was actually kind of lovely. I, I really do have a, a romantic hindsight about it. People thought I was on drugs. They really thought I was either. I don't know what they meant. <laughs> like, what is this Jesus? <laughs> Can you get pretty, me some? Sounds pretty hot. JCAD33, whoo, that'll <laughs> knock you out. Pretty sweet. I, I think they might have meant antidepressants or something. But mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. no one believed that I was so, but I was. I was so earnest and so genuinely enthusiastic to be in New York. But then, like, people really started to enjoy, I think, for the most part, having this Teletubby. <laughs> Like, in the scene. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, people trusted me with information and the keys to the club. They were like, hey, can you open up tomorrow? Like, imagine having a Boy Scout around. It's like, can you count the money? And you're like, you damn Skippy. You know, but it's a darn, (laughs) darn Skippy. Yeah. yeah, Yeah. It was refreshing when everyone else was, like, trying to steal, like, liquor from the sidebar. Pete Holmes, his new HBO series is called Crashing. And after a quick break, he'll be back to answer your etiquette question. That's right. And don't worry, as you just heard, I'm sure he'll be easy on you guys. He is a sweetheart. Actually, is that a problem? Is he going to be too nice, maybe? Well, you're here. So that's... <laughs> okay. That's right. We'll be fine. We'll be fine. When the dinner party download continues. I'll be the grumpy ballast. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, culture, food, and humor to fuel your party conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, author Viet Thanh Nguyen tells the true story that inspired his new collection, The Refugees. But first, we're back with comedian Pete Holmes, who is here to answer your etiquette questions. Yes, we just spoke to him about his new HBO series, Crashing, and he also showed us his philosophical side. I'm doing a tea ceremony. Please give me just one second. <laughs> the, here, here's the name of your book. Your next book will be called The Tao Te Zing. Okay, you got that one's for free. Wow, that That's one's for free. Pretty good. Our first question comes from Emmy in Los Angeles. Emmy writes, "I was at a party recently, and I told my friend a joke. She laughed, then repeated the joke to a bunch of other people without giving me any credit. Yeah, oh. if it was just this incident, I'd brush it off. But this person does this kind of thing all the time. Should I confront her? Yes, in real time. <laughs> when she really? does it, you should say, "Yeah, I told her that joke." <laughs> Those laughs are mine. How does that How does that benefit you, though? Does that yeah. make you look very good to those people? Seems like sour grapes. Yeah, sour grapes are delicious if you want to have a tart wine. Oh, okay. Have some sour grapes. You can't... Oh. I, I will say that in high school, I made quite a comedy career out of repeating my friend Tom Kalatasi's jokes. He would... Like, there was a kid named... This, this is so stupid, but there was a kid in our class named Radu, and my friend Tom goes, Radu, you love me. And I just go, Radu, you love me? And everyone laughed wow. so hard. Even Radu. It was a great what did he? What did Where Tom is do? Tom right now? To this day, well, Tom's a, a, a dear friend, but he still gives me grief about stealing his routine. Which, according is to your, your etiquette, is a good thing to do. Like, you should get grief for that. I'm basing this on Tom. Okay. Because jokes, even if you didn't write the joke, you're the curator of the joke. Yeah. You found it. Yeah. You memorized it. Who knows what flair you gave it, personal flair, <laughs> while telling it. Mm-hmm. And now this person's just, that is a, a huge offense. Not okay. Are you going to wear my pants next? <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> fail. Where's the button we push when it's like, there fail. Right. <laughs> All right, Emmy. But you knew that. 
I yes. told you what you already knew in your heart. Uh, here's something. <laughs> oh, this next one was left on our hotline. We have a hotline, like a superhero. We will let this woman introduce herself. Hi, my name is Mari. I'm from Rochester, Minnesota. I live in an apartment complex of about 500 units, and we all share a common laundry facility. There are times when the same clothes will be sitting in the same machines, taking up space. When I need to do my family's laundry, there aren't enough machines. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. is it wrong for me to take someone else's laundry out of the machine and put it on the folding table so that I can use the washer or dryer? Or should I just let it sit there and Minnesota nice, maybe leave a passive-aggressive note? Thanks. Uh, uh, What's your name? Murray. Murray, again, you know. You know the answer, Mark. <laughs> of course you take it out. Yeah. I'm not even yeah. putting it on the folding table. I'm putting it on top of the machine. I know. Yeah, that's true. Or on the floor. Exactly. And I hope it's your delicates. <laughs> I hope it's lacy things you're embarrassed that you ever wore. Yeah. Some sort of role play outfit that you had to wash. <laughs> I'm going to take the, the, the lint off the filter mm. and put it on top of your laundry. Oh, man. That's not passive aggressive. That's aggressive aggressive. <laughs> yeah. What? Minnesota nice. That's California. That's California mean. Let's, uh, let's for a second though, consider the person whose laundry this is. Perhaps they got an emergency call. Perhaps they got involved in some some problem, a family call. issue. I appreciate that, but yeah. th- these aren't apartments for laundry. They're yeah. washing machines. Yeah, but <laughs> if you want to have your clothes live in there, right. that's what the quarters are. You're renting this for a brief period, and if you want to stay in there, you owe us a thousand dollars a month. Yeah, yeah, you owe a lot more quarters. <laughs> All right, we have another question. This one comes from Kelly in Dubuque, Iowa. Kelly writes, "I live in a small town in a rural state." You don't say. She's from Dubuque, Iowa. Dubuque, Iowa. Sometimes folks will make offhand remarks that indicate they assume I subscribe to certain religious beliefs. Mm. What's the best way to let them know I'm not actually busy Sunday morning? Mm-hmm. Euphemism. Mm-hmm. Should I even try to correct them? Interesting. She's intimating that the, that people are assuming she goes to church. Is yeah. that the thing? People, when they encounter her, assume that she's religious, yeah. Because yes. she's from this small town? Yeah. If you're never going to see them again, maybe mm-hmm. you can just let it slide. But it's, I think mm-hmm. it's one of those situations like on what date do you tell someone you're divorced? It's the second mm-hmm. date. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you have multiple run-ins. Yeah, if you see this person again, they're like, well, you love the Lord. Just be like, wait a minute now. I'm a Satan <laughs> yeah. person. You know what I mean? Or whatever you're into. <laughs> and there is nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Because you don't want to be yeah. that person. You know, my mom was that person. We I remember we went to a store and remember the want ads? This is pre, yeah. pre-internet. There was a magazine called the want ads. And I go, I was trying to buy a used television, and I go, hi, do you have the want ads? And the guy behind the counter goes, are you kidding? It's the Bible, like meaning he loves it. My mm. mother, religious, goes, the Bible's the Bible. You know what oh, I mean? Don't, wow. like, it, maybe if we knew this guy and we had a rapport, yeah. this was the yeah. first and only time we went to the store, and my mom just took a moment to be like, right on his wrist. It's like, relax. Okay. So if somebody is like making an assumption about you because you're from a certain area, people assume I'm a Red Sox fan all the time is that because I'm from Boston, but I'll let it go. Then maybe the second time and they're like, well, maybe we'll go to a game sometime. I'll be like, Jerry, I got some bad news. <laughs> I don't care about your wooden ball game. I don't care about that wooden ball match that you have on the green grass. <laughs> yeah, I'd like, Jerry, rather I'm do bu- anything. I'm busy Sunday morning. Yeah, yeah, I'll way. be at church. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. I think you've got plenty of answer there, Kelly. Yeah, there you go, Kelly. Who I hear is from Dubuque, Iowa. <laughs> Here is something from Bob in Chicago. Ooh. Bob writes, is there any good way, oh, this is good, as an audience member, 
to help deal with an obnoxious heckler who's interrupting a perfectly funny stand-up comedian and messing with my enjoyment of the set. Sure is. Yeah, Good what question. Is it? Okay. What's this, this guy's name is That's Bob in Bob, Chicago. Bob. Bob in Chicago. Good people, Bob. Good people in Chicago encased mates. <laughs> uh, Bobby, I think that's a great question. You need to wait until it's like, uh, remember the terror colors? <laughs> What? The terror level. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, threat yeah. level, yellow. The threat level. You need to wait until we're like an orange before an audience, I think, can step in. If in it's Chicago. at that point where the comedian has to be really mean, that's probably what the comedian's going to do. If someone in the audience, and I've had this happen, where the whole audience will boo a person, and then you're like, look, you're heckling each other now. The comedian gets out with no no blood on his hands, so to speak. Ah, so oh. in the best case scenario, it's the audience should uprise. It's absolutely a a welcome addition. Well, what have someone else do your dirty work? Yeah, but you don't understand. I I've done this. I've destroyed a heckler, uh-huh. and then I look at my set list. I'm like, the next bit I'm going to do is called "I've Never Been Angry." Oh yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like you, yeah, you you disrupt your flow. It's like a dad yelling at the kids on the way to Disneyland. It's like yeah. it's so much better. If maybe my daughter tells my son to cool out so I don't have to turn around and go like, shut up! Shut up! What I'm doing! <laughs> that ruins Disneyland. All right, Pete Holmes, the author of the new book, The Dao Day Zing. Dao Day Zing! Thanks for coming by and telling our audience how to behave. Guys, be excellent to each other. Pete Holmes, his new HBO show is called Crashing. Feel free to heckle him on your TV. That really doesn't affect him at all. And folks, just like Mari in Minnesota, you can send us your question in glorious audio form. We've got Mm. an exceedingly silly video that shows you precisely how to do it. Check that out at dinnerpartydownload.org. Viet Thanh Nguyen's first novel, The Sympathizer, won a ton of awards, including the Pulitzer Prize. He's just published his second book to great acclaim. It's a collection of short stories called The Refugees. Many of the stories are informed by his childhood, growing up the son of Vietnamese refugees in San Jose. But when I spoke with him, he confessed he wasn't above stealing the concept for his story Fatherland from someone else. This is actually based on a true story. I met a woman and she told me about what had happened to her family. And I thought, this is a great idea. I'm going to steal it from you. (laughs) Although I did ask her for permission. And she said, yes, you can Mm. do it. So the story is about a man and a woman. They're married and they have three kids. And then the, the, uh, the war ends. And the wife finds out that the husband's been cheating. And so she flees the country and takes those three kids with her while he's in a re-education camp. And when he comes out of the re-education camp, he marries another woman and has three more kids and names them after his first three. And the story begins <laughs> when one of those uh, children raised in America comes back to Vietnam to meet the sister who was named after her. And the sister who was named after her has constructed all these fantasies about what the American lives have been like for her half-siblings. And it's about what happens when she encounters the reality that this half-sibling brings back with her. This is a perfect device to kind of explore something which it seems lies at the heart of being an immigrant, which is the life one could have led. I bet you couldn't have imagined your luck when you when you struck upon that story. Yeah, I'm always looking out for stories. I'm listening to people, observing people, and you know, reading newspapers for interesting tidbits. But this point about having this feeling of the possibility of alternative lives and parallel universes uh, has certainly always been with me. The idea that if I had stayed in Vietnam, I would have lived a very, very different life. What would I have been like? Or in reverse, you know, we left an adopted sister behind. What would her life have been like if she had 
come to the United States. And so that sense of being haunted by other possibilities and by other people's possibilities has always been with me, and it's a major theme in the book. Yeah. Well, you're mentioning being haunted. That's a perfect transition for the other story I want to talk about. Uh, The first story in this book is called Black-Eyed Woman, and it's about a woman who is a Vietnamese refugee who has become a ghostwriter. Her brother died when they were escaping Vietnam. She lives in America now, and in the story, she starts to get visited by his ghost. Do you remember how the notion of ghosts came to you and how that evolved into a story? Well, I think Vietnamese people you know, have always believed in ghosts, and I grew up with this idea that ghosts existed, that they did actually come and visit their survivors. And these kinds of ghosts were not necessarily scary ghosts. I mean, their appearances to their relatives were actually oftentimes welcomed because the relatives knew this was the final farewell. So I wanted to write a, a literally a ghost story that would accommodate that kind of non-frightening story and yet would also come to stand in for what it means to be haunted by the past. So this ghostwriter literally deals with being someone who writes for other people, but she's also haunted by this missing brother. And it's not simply something that is emotional for her, but it's also literal. And I, I thought that so many people who've survived you know, difficult histories of trauma, they literally are haunted. I mean, ghosts might as well be yeah. real to them. I think as a refugee, growing up among refugees, you know, the people that I witnessed were growing up steeped in a sense of melancholy and sadness and sometimes bitterness and rage. And it was these kinds of emotions that I wanted to try to explore in the stories. Well, it also seems like the past haunts people differently depending on their age and how old they were when the refugee experience happened. Uh, you know, in, in the story we were just talking about, Black Eyed Woman, one of the dynamics at play is kind of the immigrant child's experience versus their parents. And I wonder, can you talk a little bit about those relationships and why they appealed to you as an author? Well, th- there's only one autobiographical short story in the book, which is War Years. But the entire collection, I think, is emotionally autobiographical. When I was growing up, I certainly saw my parents and people of my parents' generation unable to let go of the past and the old country. And for me, the old country, Vietnam, and everybody that we had left behind there were really abstract Nevertheless, I was impacted by the feelings that I witnessed and the stories that I heard. And so I felt myself eventually to be the bearer, if not of firsthand memories that I had witnessed, the bearer of secondhand memories. Mm. And I think many people of my generation, the 1.5 generation, and then later the second generation feel the same way, that they don't really have any memory or very little memory of what had happened in uh, the country that they come from, but they've been deeply shaped by what their parents have gone through. Yeah. There's a dual nature to that because the parents aren't only aware of the customs of the homeland, they've also been through a trauma. There's instances in this book again and again where they're very protective. They know that everything can disappear in a moment. You know, there's a kind of a lingering disquiet. Yeah, and I think that, you know, for refugee populations in the United States... They're all marked by terrible, difficult experiences in crossing over to the United States. It's a universal condition of what it means to be a refugee, to have undergone that kind of trauma. And that kind of pervasiveness of dislocation and all of the the hardships and feelings that ensue from that is something that I think many Americans and as well, many Europeans as well, when when, when they're facing new refugees, they're unaware of uh, what that means. And so that was one of the reasons why it was important for me to write this book. 
As we're recording this interview, there's you know a proposal of an immigration ban for certain countries that's being argued. We don't know how that's going to go just yet. But refugees have certainly been in the news, and, and you've recently wrote some op-eds on this topic. Uh, and you write, not only do Americans not understand maybe what it means to be a refugee, but that they're almost repelled by them. I think what you're getting at is that people don't like to be reminded about how fragile things really are. In the United States, I think even though we have ambivalent feelings about immigrants, immigrants are nevertheless a part of the American dream, the American mythology, and Americans can make sense out of immigrants, people who want to come here and make a life here. Yeah. Um, refugees, however, are not immigrants. They're quite different, and it's important to draw that distinction because refugees are forced to flee, and they arrive basically as homeless people who've lost everything. And that, I think, really does make Americans uncomfortable because I think Americans feel that it is un-American to be a refugee. Nothing mm. in the American dream prepares Americans to believe that their lives can be totally shattered the next day by a catastrophe like war or a natural disaster. And when refugees appear, they are living reminders of that possibility, and that makes people uncomfortable. Viet Tan Nguyen, his new collection of short stories is called The Refugees. It's out now. And that's the Dinner Party download for this week, folks. Our senior producer is Jackson Musker. Our associate producers are Krista Ripple and James Kim. Christina Lopez is our associate digital producer. Thanks to engineer Jake Gorski. Our interns are Emerald Douglas and Kathleen McGovern, who leaves us this week to continue her radio journey. Kathleen, thank you for your fine work and bon voyage. We are going to smash a champagne bottle on the side of your cubicle. We will. And now, folks, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to spin on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Shugo Takumaru is an experimental musician. Please don't switch us off. Just, just bear with it's us. It's a good song. Don't be afraid. Uh, Shugo has a new album coming out this April. It is called Toss. And here's a track from it called Lita Ruta. Bon appétit. Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. You guys are boring. Hey, you be quiet and let them finish. <laughs> wow. These people are heckling each other. Those are my parents. Oh.